This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Alan Jacobs, Distinguished Professor of Humanities in the Honours Programme at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. It's a delight to have Alan on the programme today. We're going to talk about his new book, The Year of Our Lord 1943, just published by Oxford University Press. Alan, congratulations on the book and welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Crawford. It's good to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And I must say, it's a particular pleasure to have you, given your well-known caution about hyper-information and hyper-connectivity. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think uh, one of the few uh, remaining genres that I'm happy with is the podcast. I, I love the independence of podcasts and the way that they uh, have a kind of an immediate reach to people. It's fun to be on them. Are you still skeptical, as you once were, about digital technology, hyperconnectivity, the internet, and so on? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I, I mean, what what I'm mainly you know concerned about right now is the the damage that social media do to our uh, our social fabric, um, the the way that social media strongly encourage us to make intemperate and instantaneous responses. And, and in relation to that, one of the nice things about podcasts is that they actually slow people down a little bit. You know, you, you put on your headphones, you go for a walk or you're driving in your car and you, you sort of listen to something unfold over a little bit of time. It's a nice change of pace from that instantaneous like dislike of, uh, of social media in general. Well, already, Alan, people are clicking like and dislike at the bottom of this podcast. Um, you say yeah. you say the podcast is good for us to slow down, but but you're not someone who's ever slowed down. I think your productivity mm-hmm. is quite incredible. Can you tell us something about yourself? Sure. So um, I'm a native of Alabama. Um, grew up in in Birmingham, uh, really in the middle of the civil rights movement. Uh, um, somehow found my way to university, um, which is uh, something nobody else in my family ever did. Um, and then from there to graduate school at the University of Virginia. Um, and I had, uh, I had an opportunity um, for a one-year appointment uh, at Wheaton College in Illinois, which I was interested in because Wheaton is a Christian liberal arts college. And I had n- never taught in a Christian institution. I was a relatively young Christian. And I thought, I'm going to go for one year just to see what it's like. Uh, I had been educated in public universities, state universities. Let me find out what it's like. And so I went for one year and one year turned into 29 years. Huh. Um, and um, uh, I, I love teaching 
working at Wheaton, uh, but uh, when the opportunity came for me to move to Baylor, um, my wife and I both thought that it was an interesting new challenge. Um, and so I've been here for six years now. Beautiful. And Baylor's a beautiful campus, isn't it? It was there in April, uh, and it's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I, uh, one of the things that I really delight in here in this part of Central Texas is the live oaks, the great big spreading live oaks that are all over the place. And the neighborhood we live in, we chose because it's just full of those live oaks. Beautiful. And tell me this, Alan, before we talk about the book, do you often mm -hmm. feed the bears? I, I try to keep my distance from the bears, uh, but I think they're, we are well protected uh, from, from the bears. Uh, um, they are not uh, tame animals, so we want to be careful. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, listen, the book that we're going to talk about today, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, just published by Oxford University Press, it's a book that follows on thematically from some of your other recent work. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the pleasures of reading in an age of distraction, for example. Um, mm -hmm. how, how would you connect this project to, to your other recent uh, projects? And are you still concerned that we might be moving too fast to think properly about the humanities and what they can contribute to intellectual life in our age? Yeah, the the um, oh, I, I have a friend, uh, Chad Wellman. Who, who teaches at University of Virginia, who is working with a colleague on a book called Permanent Crisis about the humanities, because the humanities are always in crisis. It is the nature of the humanities to be to be in crisis, sure. it seems. Um, and, um, and, and I think that our uh, I, I have spent a good bit of the last decade uh, trying to find ways to talk about uh, what the humanities offer to us in, in ways that are not uh, priggish or snotty or uh, above it all. Um, I, I'm not a Mandarin, and I don't like that particular style. Um, uh, and I think too many commendations of the humanities um, really present um, humanistic learning as a kind of an elitist uh, phenomenon um, and and I, I, I don't like to think of it that way. Um, and I'm interested in myself articulating a kind of humanistic model that is historically rich, uh, that is grounded in ancient tradition, but is something that is communicable to a much wider audience than many of my fellow academics try to, to reach. And so The Pleasures of Reading was a book that commends the depth, the richness, the wide-ranging benefits of reading, but in a way that wasn't moralistic that uh, and wasn't elitist, uh, but instead emphasized pleasure and emphasized the quite legitimate pleasures that can be found from many different kinds of reading. My, my five protagonists in The Year of Our Lord, 1943, um, they sort of are elitists <laughs> in at least uh, some ways. All of them um, except I guess maybe maybe Lewis and Auden in their own ways were were very in their different ways were very aware of the dangers of elitism, but they are also people who were trying to ask how can we how can we commend poetry and fiction and drama and philosophy and history to an age that is becoming increasingly obsessed with its own technological power? What might that commendation look like? That was the question they were asking. And that's pretty much the question I've been asking uh, in my own way and in my own time. Hmm. 
Well, Alan, you've just mentioned C.S. Lewis and W.H. Auden. Which other writers are you thinking about in this book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943? Yeah, the five the, the five protagonists, uh, the book actually originally started with just three. It was Lewis, Auden, and Jacques Maritain, the great Catholic, uh, French Catholic philosopher and theologian. Um, but after a while, I realized that T.S. Eliot needed to play a part in the story as well. And then finally, Simone Weil, the French uh, indes- uh, indescribable French mystic philosopher, theologian. Uh, it's hard to say what she is. Um, and, and she became increasingly central to my conception of the project. So though she was the last one that I decided I needed to write about, mm. eventually she became, at least for me personally, maybe the most important of the five. Mm. Tell us a little bit more about why you chose this five, uh, this group of five writers. It's not a friendship network as such, is it? No, it's not at all. Um, they, um, uh, they, none of them were close to any of the others. Um, uh, uh, Simone Weil and Maritain had a certain, they corresponded a bit from time to time. Um, Lewis um, hated uh, Eliot's poetry yeah. um, and and was um, is very suspicious of Eliot as a person. The only reason they had any contact is that they had a mutual friend yeah. in Charles Williams um, who tried to bring them together but did not succeed before his untimely death in 1945. Um, but here's how it started. Um, I, I was one day I was I was browsing on in my own bookshelves and I grabbed a book that I had bought some years earlier. It's a little book by Jacques Maritain called Education at the Crossroads. And I opened it up and looked at it and saw that it was uh, had originated as a series of lectures given at Yale University in early 1943. And for some reason, it uh, uh, popped into my head that that was exactly the time when Lewis gave the lectures that became the book, The Abolition of Man. Mm. And then I realized soon thereafter that Auden, who was who was uh, teaching at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania at the time, gave a lecture uh, there called Vocation and Society. And this was, at, again, at exactly the same time, this brief period of just a few weeks from mid-January to early February 1943. And it occurred to me that all Three, the, the two sets of lectures and then the individual lecture by Auden were about education. Mm. Um, and I thought, why in the middle of this massive war are these three people thinking about education? That just seems an odd. You, know, you, you would think that any number of other topics would be more urgent in their minds um, and, and, and that just struck me as being curious enough that I needed to explore it. Soon thereafter, I realized that another absolutely contemporaneous event, uh, again, uh, third week of January uh, 1943, was the Casablanca Conference in which the Allies laid their plans for finishing up the war. And I realized that at this point, um, it, it had become perfectly clear to the Allied leaders and, and that this was disseminated through the press that they knew they were going to win. Uh, they knew that they would eventually defeat the Axis powers. It was just a question of how long it was going to take. Uh, but they had an absolute confidence, which was justified, 
uh, had a lot to do with the entry of the U.S. into the war because of the enormous uh, industrial power of the U.S. They could build airplanes and ships faster than the Axis powers could shoot them down and sink them. Um, and so uh, it was it was it was a done deal. It was a fait accompli. Um, just just a matter of timing. And, and I, it occurred to me then that ah, that's where the emphasis on education comes from, because what these people are thinking about is what is the world going to look like when when this war is over? We will have fought two horrifically destructive wars um, in a period of a little more than 20 years. Uh, we, we will have seen incalculable damage to much of Europe physically and even more damage to the whole of Europe morally and spiritually. And so it was natural enough that these three figures, all of whom were Christ, all three of whom were Christians, were thinking, is there something that we as Christians can do to, to formulate and then to contribute to a model of education that will help to, to restore the moral and spiritual strength of a broken continent. Um, and then a little later on, I realized, oh, Elliot is talking about this also. And then, oh, Simone Weil is talking about this also. They're all interested in it. And that just struck me as such a fascinating phenomenon that I knew I had to write about it. Well, these are these are all fascinating characters, Alan, but they're all quite different characters too, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What kinds of Christians are we talking about in the year of our Lord, 1943? Do they, do they have a shared religious vision? Do they have a shared sense yeah. of, of religious vocation? Do they have a shared mm -hmm. sense of what this society is actually going to look like? Are we mm -hmm. seeing multiple and conflicting Christian visions right. of education right. and the society to which it may give birth? Or is there something else going on? Yeah, it's, um, it's, that, that's, a, that's a very complicated question to answer. But I think the simplest way to put it is to say that they had... Um, uh, they shared a kind of diagnosis, but they differed fairly considerably in, in their prescriptions. Um, so, uh, for example, so just in, in terms of the the, uh, the the traditions that they belong to, uh, uh, Auden, Lewis, and uh, and Eliot are all uh, Anglicans, um, varying degrees of height. Uh, as the as the saying goes, right? You know, Elliot very much an Anglo-Catholic, uh, Lewis very much middle of the road, um, Auden at that time very strongly reformed in his attitude. The 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 uh, the, the, the sort of Calvinist um, uh, overtones of the old Book of Common Prayer were very much to his taste. So even though they were all Anglicans, they represented different strands of Anglicanism. Um, Maritain, uh, of course, a Roman Catholic, um, and, and Simone Weil, uh, uh, Jewish by birth, um, someone drawn powerfully to Catholicism um, and to Christianity in general, but who, for her own peculiar reasons, refused to be baptized. So all of them uh, believed that a better understanding of Christianity and a better understanding of the Christian account of the human person, um, they were all in their different ways uh, adherents to the philosophy that Maritain had named personalism, the idea that the, the human person can only flourish when, be, when in right relationship to, uh, to his or her neighbor 
and in right relationship to God. Uh, this sort of integral whole personhood. That's what they all wanted to get. But they had very different ideas about how to do that. For instance, Maritain and Eliot were people who were perfectly happy to work within the existing structures of the political order, whereas Simone Weil wanted to tear those structures down and replace them with a far more radically, uh, radically egalitarian model of society. Um, uh, so... They, they all had their different ways of trying to deal with this problem, but they all understood that, that, the, that Europe was afflicted by a kind of a depletion of personhood, that, that everyone's personal integrity had been in some way wounded by this larger social order, and that what Christianity was about was the restoration of the person. And then if you could have the restoration of the person, then ultimately you could have the restoration of the society. But because they believe so much in the restoration of the person, that's why they emphasized education so much. How can, how can young people be formed in such a way that they achieve integral personhood? Hmm. Is it significant that at least several of your cast of characters are converts? Oh, absolutely. Um, so, when you think of, uh, I mean, Simone Weil was someone whose, whose conversion was never fully completed. Yeah. Um, Maritain was, when, when he was uh, a university student in Paris, he and his wife, Raisa, uh, were both atheists and uh, thought that the natural uh, outcome of their atheism was suicide uh, and, and decided to, to give themselves a year to find something other than atheism by which they could they could live. Um, and they found their way to the lectures of Henri Bergson, who was not actually a Christian, but who nevertheless opened their eyes to the possibility of Christianity. And that led to them being uh, moving into the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so uh, Eliot, of course, was someone who uh, had uh, you know, no religious belief whatsoever uh, in his uh, early adulthood. Um, the the wasteland, which is uh, his his great poem, which is often seen as a kind of a description of the the ruin of European society, was for Eliot himself a description of his own personal ruin, um, and he only found himself uh, his his way to faith a little bit after that. Auden had been raised as a uh, uh, had, had been raised in a Christian home and an Anglican home. His mother was a very devout Anglo Catholic. But his father was much less devout and was a, a, a physician. Um, and Auden had no religious belief whatsoever. He thought by the time he was in, when he first became really, really famous in the mid-1930s, he said later on, I thought I was done with Christianity for good, but had a, a quite extraordinary, I think, conversion uh, when he came to America in 1939 and 1940. So they, none of them were people who had had a kind of an unbroken history of Christian belief. Um, they had been, you know, raised with, with various levels of, of religion. Simone Weil, none at all. Um, she, in fact, when she was growing up, didn't even know what a Jew was. Uh, she thought a Jew meant a usurer yeah. uh, and was not aware that she was a Jew. Um, that's how completely non-observant her family was. Um, but the rest had some degree of, 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 of more or less conventional Christian upbringing, but nothing that took. Um, and so they were very aware of the ways in which they had suffered 
because of their own malformation. Um, their education, their upbringing had not been uh, a, a healthy one in one way or another. Um, and so I think that 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 fact that they had to in some ways then re-educate themselves, reform themselves in the image of Christ um, uh, because their own upbringing had not given them that or they had not received it in any case. I think that gave them a special interest in education because of its power to, to form and shape young minds and hearts. One of the uh, characters you speak about, Mortimer Adler, notes early on in the book that democracy is more at risk from the mentalities of university teachers than it is from the nihilism of Hitler. Just following on from your last comment there about the power mm. of education to transform and shape and, and reconstruct society, that seems to be a very, very dark observation. Yeah. <laughs> what, what did he mean? And how many yeah. of our cast of characters shared that perspective? Yeah, it is. Uh, um, uh, that that was, I think, Adler, uh, you know, somewhat deliberately setting the cat amidst the pigeons. Mm. Uh, he, 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 I, I don't think he could possibly have believed that literally. Um, but 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 there was there was a kernel of truth to it. And and I think that uh, one of the ways to get at that kernel of truth is to think about a phrase that is associated with Reinhold Niebuhr, another important figure of the time, um, but probably didn't originate with him. Um, Niebuhr, Niebuhr did use the phrase, um, and, and the phrase was that um, we don't want to win the war and lose the peace. Um, and, and, and what he meant by that was something like this. Um, yeah, we could win the war. But what if we win it by compromising our core values? What if we win it by being more cruel, more vicious, more remorseless than our adversaries? Or even if we're not morally worse than them, well, what if we become morally equivalent to them? What if we do things just simply because they do those things? Or even in yet another uh, less dramatic way, what if we win the war because we have um, uh, we've just simply turned over the running of our country, our nations to a technocratic elite who don't think in terms of what's right and wrong, but only of what is efficient or inefficient? Um, then in those various ways, we can wound and limit um, flatten our souls. And if we do that, then we may indeed be able to vanquish our enemies, but at what cost to us as persons and as a society? Um, and, and so in a variety of ways, all of the figures that I deal with were concerned with that. They didn't necessarily think, you know, they didn't necessarily think that as Adler, uh, as Adler did, or at least seemed to, <clears throat> that the Western democracies were becoming purely relativist and that by becoming purely relativist, they were becoming no better than Nazis or communists. Um, or and this is, I think another part of, of what Adler was thinking. If you become, if you, if what you teach in your universities is relativism, moral and political and social and every other kind of relativism, then you actually create 
in your students uh, uh, a deep desire for certainty. And those students then might turn to fascism or communism because fascism and communism offer <clears throat> the certainty that you professors have denied them. So you may be making fascists and communists, even though you don't believe in fascism and communism. <clears throat> that's that. That's one way to think about it. That's one of the concerns. My figures, my five figures, tended to focus more on the problem of technocracy. They were a little more concerned with, <clears throat> as Eliot puts it, taking what are ultimately problems of life, about how to live, what is the good life? What is the best way to live? What brings about human flourishing? What brings about personal flourishing and also social flourishing? Taking those questions and redescribing them as problems of engineering. How do you engineer a happy person? How do you engineer a successful society? And then uh, when you do that, you have uh, you, you've really killed people's souls. Um, and so so whereas. Whereas Adler was concerned primarily about relativism, the five figures that I deal with were, they were concerned about that, especially Maritain, but they were more concerned about the, the technocracy, sort of turning human beings into objects to be, that are subjected to engineering prowess. It's very striking reading through your book, Alan, that when we come to chapter four, we come to a chapter, the title of which is Demons. Yeah. Is the discovery of Christianity for your central cast of characters also a discovery of evil? And how do these writers unpack this idea of evil? Yeah, I think so. And I think it's actually related to your previous question, because uh, I, I think what they see is a kind of, you know, uh, uh, when, when Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge is writing about Shakespeare's Othello, he's writing about he's he's very interested in the character of Iago and he talks about what he calls Iago's motiveless malignancy um, yes Iago does give an explanation for why he hates uh, Othello so much uh, but then he gives a different explanation for why he hates him and then he gives a third explanation um, and, and, and at the root of it you can tell that no, this isn't actually anything that is explained or accounted for. His malignancy is motiveless. It's not driven by anything except some sort of deep interior poison. And and I think that the idea that um, that human beings that our human problems can be solved by engineering, um, just engineering society correctly, assumes. That at, at, at bottom, human beings are, are no worse than neutral. Um, and that if they are morally and spiritually neutral, then they can be nudged or uh, reshaped, controlled in such a way that they will behave better and then therefore society will become better. Um, you know, uh, as, as, as one of uh, Ernest Hemingway's Character says, "Isn't it pretty to think so? Um, you know that 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 it's that easy." Um, but what all of these writers discerned was something in human beings uh, as a whole that is 
profoundly resistant <laughs> to doing the right thing, even when the right thing might be in their personal interest or the social interest. That is, deep down inside of all of us, there is some kind of motiveless malignancy. There is a kind of love of nastiness for its own sake, uh, um, a, a, a delight in doing what is wrong. Um, and uh, and if that's the case, if that's how we are, then projects of social engineering are doomed to failure. And the primary reason that they're doomed to failure is that the people who are doing the social engineering will have the same interior corruption that the rest of us have. And if that's the case, then they will not create a system for the, the common good, but will create one that flatters and empowers themselves. And so... Um, what these what these writers all want to do is to to face that darkness. And in that particular chapter, I'm interested in the view that some of them have. You don't hear as much about this from uh, from, for instance, Maritan as you do. You hear a little bit, but you don't hear as much from him as you do from from Simone Weil, um, uh, I think from Elliot and especially from Lewis. Um, that uh, that it, it's not just us. We're not the only ones here. Um, that there are uh, massive and terrifyingly powerful spiritual forces that are at work uh, against us, um, and that you are subject to those spiritual forces. Uh, you're not just subject to those by virtue of being a Soviet communist or by being a German Nazi. Uh, by, by virtue of being a human being, you are endangered by these forces. And not all of them would describe these forces as being demons in a strictly personal sense. Um, there is, um, uh, I think, for instance, Simone Weil, I'm not sure whether Weil believed in demons, but she believed in what St. Paul calls powers, um, principalities and powers, um, that there are these these vast forces for evil that are kind of disseminated through the social order. Uh, they don't necessarily take personal form, but they're disseminated through. So that that's how, how Simone, I mean, Simone Bay would talk as much as any other far left winger about structural injustice, but she thinks structural injustice is a product of supernatural evil. Um, and um, I think she's incredibly powerful talking about that, at least as, uh, to, to my Case. And so for them, um, then this is yet another reason why uh, you need young people need to be formed in really strongly Christian ways, because it is not always just flesh and blood that we are fighting against, but principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, as Paul puts it. Fascinating. I think one of the things your book does so powerfully is to show how writers who we might associate with creative production are also intensely involved in this investigation of the ideal of a Christian society. You mentioned mm. T.S. Eliot's book uh, of that title, mm -hmm. Idea, of, Idea of a Christian Society, a book I confess I've had for 20 years and never read. And I suspect mm -hmm. I'm not the only person, uh, not just because I don't enjoy T.S. Eliot very much, but mm. also because it's, it's not a book that Eliot scholars themselves often turn to, to explicate right. his thought. Uh, Right. You have this wonderful line where you describe Eliot's idea of a Christian society as a masterpiece of vagueness and evasion, even for Eliot. Um, can, yeah. can you tell us, wh why, why does the book matter? 
And why do you describe it uh, in those terms? Yeah, um, it's, um, you know, Eliot's, Eliot's prose does have this tendency towards vagueness. Um, I think he, on the one hand, he, he decided at this point in his maturity that he needed to be involved in, um, in, in social thought. He got very interested in sociology considered in a very broad sense that would, you know, in, include politics as well as, as, as sociology. And, and I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that, um, Eliot, uh, of course, Eliot was an American and though he had become a British subject in 1927, um, and was, I think to, to any, any American would have seen him as being almost impossibly English in his manner, in his bearing. Um, he was never really recognized as uh, he was always known as the American gentleman. Um, that's when, when he worked at favor and favor for all those years, you know, the people who worked there. I'm Mr. Elliot, the American gentleman. Uh, and um, he, he wasn't really a part of uh, fully a part of English society. There was uh, uh, there was a, 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 a several times over the years where he wrote letters to London newspapers and magazines on some issue, and, and rather than signing his own name, he signed using the Greek word meaning resident alien. Um, and um, and I think he, he he so he was very aware that he didn't quite belong. On the other hand. He had made this investment in society. He had abandoned his American citizenship and become a subject of the king. And, and, and I think he saw England essentially throwing away its social inheritance. Um, he saw England becoming more and more like America. Um, and, and so part of him was saying, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't set aside my American citizenship. In order to 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 become uh, a citizen of a country that is indistinguishable from the one that I left, so he wanted to to kind of make a case for England continuing to be uh, what it had been. He make a case for a kind of social conservatism uh, because that was what had attracted him to the country in the first place. So there's a bit of desperation there, you know, that I signed up for this and now it's all changing, but then. I think he thought on the one hand, maybe the fact that I am a resident alien, maybe that can work for me. Maybe that people will listen because they will see me as someone who is a close observer of this world, but not born within it. And maybe that will give my analysis a bit of of interest that it wouldn't have otherwise. But then another part of him thought that, well, you know, who am I to make these kinds of judgments? And so the result of that is that he had uh, he had so many ideas for how he wanted the society to be formed, but then he would be hesitant about expressing them too forcefully <laughs> and realizing, oh, maybe maybe I shouldn't be the one to say this. So he was always, well, I'm not saying this, I'm not saying that, I don't mean this, I don't mean that. Perhaps I might hazard this idea. And so it's all so tentative and so abstract that it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and and I think his his what he's doing in his poetry 
is so much more powerful and so much more meaningful and so much more long lasting that I, I feel like it's a real shame that we're, 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 uh, his social ideas are more powerfully expressed in poetry than they ever were in prose. Hmm. Well, this magnificent book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, reaches out past 1943. It reaches out past this cast of five characters, and it ends in a very intriguing way with Jacques Ellul. Why did you mm. choose to end with him? Yeah, it, it, so the reason is, uh, it, first of all, Ellul is just a fascinating figure um, in so many ways. Um, but, uh, you know, what all of these writers, well, all of my writers saw was and what they tried to resist, what they fought against, what they they tried to articulate a kind of a model of of humanistic learning to oppose was the dominance of technocracy. What they wanted was uh, to create insofar as they could influence their societies, a kind of a model of education that would keep that rich, deep three-dimensional model of humanity, of personhood, in play. Um, and, and what they were trying to do was to fight against this dominance of technocracy, this idea that Paul, Paul Kennedy has a book called Engineers of Victory. Uh, that, that's, how the, that's how the Allies won the war, through superior engineering, mm-hmm. through superior technology. Well, if these are the people who could defeat the Nazis – and the Japanese. That is, they could win wars on two fronts. They could so comprehensively dominate these, these, uh, um, uh, uh, rivals and enemies. Then perhaps we should turn over the running of our society to them. You know, why shouldn't they be entrusted with, with governing and directing us in peacetime since they did such a great job in winning the war. And this was what they were trying to resist. This was what they were trying to evade. And it did not happen. They were not successful. Increasingly, uh, after the war, um, education was redescribed in technical terms, in engineering terms, in terms of production. Um, uh, that's when all all of us who teach, you know, we started to be afflicted with more and more um, numerical demands, right? And more and more um, uh, algorithmic analysis. Well, Elul was just a few years younger than Simone Weil, but young enough that by the time he came to his intellectual maturity, the die had been cast, that he knew that he was living in a society dominated by what he called la technique. Um, and, and with, uh, he lived in this technocratic society. It was, a, it, it, it had, um, it, 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 it had been enthroned. The technocratic elite had been enthroned. And so what they, my, my protagonists were trying to avoid was what he was forced to recognize as, uh, uh, the, simply the, the, the facts of the case. Um, and so, so all of them, to some extent, I think they real all of my protagonists realized that they had to some degree lost this battle. And having lost this battle, they turned to other things. 
Um, some of the other things they turned to were absolutely wonderful, but they did not, except for Vey, of course, died in 1943. They, they didn't really think seriously and pursue seriously these questions of education and formation again, uh, because they realized they'd sort of lost that battle. What Elul does is say, well, okay, we're going to have to be formed as Christians in a technocratic order. These are the people who rule, uh, and they're going to rule for as, uh, you know, as long as I can imagine. So how might we be formed in that world? And I, so I end with Elul because Elul is the guy who's living in our world. The, my five protagonists were the people who wanted to avoid <laughs> uh, somehow the world becoming what it has indeed become. But I wanted to turn to, to Elul because he's, in a sense, saying well, we have to start over. The, the 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 time just after the war, Germans called it Stunde Null, the you know zero hour, right? That we're we're running all the clocks back to zero. We're running all the the calendars back to day one. Um, uh, and and so Elul says, okay, that's what we're doing. We are now at the we're, we're at the day one of the uh, of this new technocratic era. How can we live faithfully as Christians in this world? So he's asking a new set of questions, uh, which I think are our questions. And so I wanted to turn to him as a way of kind of bridging the gap between my five protagonists and us. Well, 75 years after 1943, mm. what can we learn from your book about our present condition? Yeah, that's, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, my, my the, the most honest answer to the question is that I don't know <laughs> and that, uh, I, you know, I wrote the book in part because I wanted to find out. That is, I wanted to think more about this. I did not write the book with an idea. This is what we can learn. Um, I, I wrote the book, but for other reasons. Um, and, 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 and now I want to think about what we can learn. Um, it, it, one of the things that, uh, that that I think we can learn is that. They started too late. That is, they became very concerned about how technocracy was forming persons uh, and in many cases malforming persons when the momentum of technocracy was already so great that there was no way to stop it. Um, and so I, I, I think one of the things that Christians need to learn from this is you need to get a head start. <laughs> you need to be able to, uh, to, to see what's coming. There is, um, there is a, a very well-known writer of comics named Warren Ellis. Um, and has written many famous comic books and has worked a lot and um, he works in television and movies and all sorts of things. And he, he talks about writers like him who do sort of science fiction -y kind of things. And he says, people like us are the early warning system for culture. As people like us are the people who are letting you know what's coming. Um, and, and I think we need Christians need more people like that. Christians need more people who can, who have the foresight to see what's coming so that we can begin to reflect sooner rather than later on the cultural conditions that our children are going to be facing. We're going to try to raise our children in the faith, but what will they be facing? What will be their challenges? What will make embracing 
the Christian faith more difficult for them. So I, I, I want us to be more, um, more forward looking in that regard. I also, though, think that one of the reasons, one of the lessons I draw from this is that, um, from this story that I've told is that one of the reasons that Christians in general were not especially well prepared to fight the coming of technocracy is the, the very same thing that made it so hard for German Christians to resist Nazism. That is, they had been formed as Christians with the idea that they were in some very fundamental sense at home in their societies and that uh, you, there was no conflict between being a German and being a Christian. How could there be? Germany is the land of Martin Luther. It's the land of Bach. It's the, you know, we are, we are of course a Christian nation. And, um, and, and that idea that they are a Christian nation is what made them so utterly vulnerable to Nazism because it had it came upon them um, and and undercut the whole of their Christian culture before they even knew what was going on. So the other thing that we have to do is know our past better. <laughs> that is, we have to be formed in an ancient and, and seriously countercultural Christianity if we're going to resist. So I guess those are the two lessons that I think we learn. It's a shame that, that it makes our lives so much harder, <laughs> but we have to be better at looking backwards and looking forwards. We have to be better at being custodians of the whole richness of the Christian tradition, and we have to be better at anticipating cultural movements that are going to make it harder for us to be custodians of that Christian tradition. That's tough. That's a tough way. We've been given a very tough road to hoe. Um, um, and if I didn't believe in grace, I wouldn't think we could do it. Well, Alan, you've been very generous both with your time today and in the time you've invested into writing this magnificent book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in the Age of Crisis. Just before we say goodbye to you, can I ask you to tell us what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I'm actually working on uh, two books, one of which is more forward looking and one of which is more backward looking. Uh, but the, the one that uh, um, the, the, the more forward looking one is a little bit in co-ed right now. And, and that one is is on the back burner. The one that's on the front burner is a book uh, which uh, I'm going to be spending the year 2019 writing. It's going to be published by Penguin Press here in the U.S. <clears throat> and right now. The title uh, that I'm giving it is Breaking Bread with the Dead. That's a line from Auden. Um, he's, uh, uh, the full sentence is, art is our chief means of breaking bread with the dead. Um, and the subtitle of the book is called is The Case for Temporal Bandwidth. Temporal bandwidth is a phrase from the American novelist Thomas Pynchon, and it's uh, how, how big is your now? How, how wide is the bandwidth of your now? Which means... Uh, how much history do you know? How much of the past do you know? Um, and, and so the book is, a, is, is essentially going to be a case for reading old books. It's going to be an attempt to convince a very presentist, very present-minded society that there are great riches for uh, the, the, the formation of our personhood <laughs> in, um, in old books. Um, we don't need to be afraid of them. We don't need to be to dismiss them as being racist and sexist and homophobic. Um, and I'm going to try to make the case, 
even for people who are completely secular, even for people who have no religious belief, even for people who don't like the past, that the past is worthy of our attention. And I think if we can get more people to be attentive to the past, that's going to make us better readers of the future as well. Well, Alan, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for writing this book, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. Uh, We really appreciate the time you spent talking to us today. So thank you very much and take care. Thanks so much, Crawford. And thanks to everyone else for listening today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you.